Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome to episode number two of the Know Your Bible podcast with Jeff Olson. And that's me. I'm Jeff Olson, and I teach the Bible. And I am stoked that you're putting me and God's word in your ears right now. Thank you so much, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing. Thank you for spending some time with me. Today is a killer day where I'm at. It's Wednesday, March 17th. The sun is out. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day, which is always cool. I got to hang with a couple that I've known for about 20 years. They were college students in my college ministry a long time ago. They've been great friends ever since. I had a blast hanging out with them. We had a challenging conversation about the Bible, about the church. It was encouraging. I was stoked to be with them. And tonight I get to hang with two of my best friends. It's Wolfpack Wednesday, and I get to hang with two of my best buddies tonight. And I've been thinking a lot about the friendships that I have and how I feel when I'm with them. And these people are people that love me and encourage me and stoke me up. They challenge me. They think different than I do. So our conversations are engaging. They've cared about me in difficult times. Uh, They've seen me through some great times. And I've just been thinking how much I want to double down on being that kind of friend for them and for other people. I want I want people to look forward to hanging out with me the way I look forward to hanging out with these guys. And I want people to leave hanging out with me as pumped and as encouraged and as cared for as I felt hanging out with these guys. So I hope you have some friends like that. It's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I hope you have some friends like that. I hope you have your own wolf pack. If you don't, you need to get one. Uh, immediately. Uh, Maybe I'll do a podcast episode on how to get a wolf pack and what your wolf pack should be doing. My wolf pack is awesome, and I cannot wait to hang out with those guys tonight. All right, here's what we're going to do in this episode. We are going to look at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. So in this section, we're going to get introduced to two key characters. First, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, and then John the Baptist, who is the messenger that goes before him. We're going to look at his role as the messenger who comes before the Lord. What is his message? What is he proclaiming? Uh, We're going to get a first look at how people are responding, right, in the story. How do people respond to the message of the messenger? And I want to clear up a little bit of a tricky passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. What does it mean that John appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? What in the world does that mean? So we're going to look at all those things In this episode of the Know Your Bible podcast, if you're ready to go, why don't you grab your Bible, grab a notebook, and grab your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. Black. All important movies start with a black screen. This is the introduction to one of my all-time favorite movies, the Lego Batman movie. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, you totally should see it. It's hysterical. I love that movie. And what Lego Batman is doing as he narrates the opening sequence of the movie, is highlighting the importance of how a story starts. How you begin a story is crucial, right? Whether it's a movie or narrative literature, the beginning of a story introduces you to like the major themes, the major plot lines, the major characters, the major conflicts. Uh, All of these things get introduced to you at the beginning of a story. We said something about this in the last episode. When you're looking at the structure of a book, You always want to pay attention to the beginning, the middle, and the end, because at the beginning, middle, and end of a story is where an author will oftentimes communicate the meaning of their message. In the Gospel of Mark, at the beginning of his story, we're going to be taken out into the wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, verse 3, there's a voice crying in the wilderness. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. In verse 12, the Spirit impels Jesus out into the wilderness. And in verse 13, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So the author takes us aside at the beginning of his story into the wilderness to introduce us to who Jesus is 
and who John the Baptist is. And again, we're going to ask the question, how will people respond in the story? So let's start out in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, right? This is the beginning of the gospel. That word gospel just means good news. And so the author of Mark is starting the story by telling us his story is about good news. So whatever it is we're reading about and the main message of the story is meant to be good news, the beginning is focused on a main character. The author focuses us first on Jesus, who is the Christ. Now that word Christ is not Jesus' last name and Jesus' middle initial is not H, right? The word Christ in Greek just means anointed one. The Hebrew word for that is Mashiach, which means anointed one. And in the story of the Old Testament, the king who comes in the last day to rule over all the earth forever, he's called the anointed one. He's called the Christos in the Greek Old Testament or the Mashiach in the Hebrew Old Testament. He's the anointed king. The author of Mark is saying Jesus is that anointed king. Jesus is the Christ and he's the son of God. And we talked about this in our previous episode, that identity of Jesus as the Son of God comes from the story of the Old Testament, God made a promise way back in the beginning to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through one of Abraham's children. As we turn the page trying to find out which child of Abraham would bless all the earth, we read in Genesis 49 that the king who will come in the last day to bless all the earth and rule over all the earth is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And later in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God promises that that king will be a son of David and that that king will have a father-son relationship with God. God says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. What is Mark saying here at the beginning of the story? Jesus is the anointed king. He's the son of God. He's the one that was promised in the story of the Old Testament to come in the last day and rule over all the earth forever. Now, these are all spoilers for us, right? I mean, geez, for, we're like one verse in, and we already know more than all the characters in the story. And so what we're going to do as we read along is we're going to watch and see which characters in the story figure this out about Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. Who figures it out? This is a key question in the story we talked about last week. Who gets it? Who responds well? Who receives the king? The Gospel of Matthew basically says the king promised in the story of the Old Testament has come, and the Gospel of Mark asks the question, well, who receives him? And that's what we're going to focus some of our time on as we go along. Now, before the author brings Jesus on the scene, he's going to bring the messenger of the king on the scene. And this is in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, this is actually a mashup, right? These these two verses are kind of a mashup from the Old Testament. Verse two comes from Malachi chapter three, verse one, and verse three comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And the mashup is linked by the theme of the messenger who goes before the Lord. That's why these two verses get pushed together. So they both have that theme of the messenger that goes before the Lord. And what the prophets are promising is that in the last day, a messenger will go before God to prepare his people for his arrival, right? A messenger will go first and then the Lord will show up. And when the Lord shows up, he will purify some of his people and he'll bring judgment to others of his people. What the author is saying here by mashing these two verses up at the beginning of his story is that now is that time. What God promised through the prophets to send a messenger before his arrival to purify some and judge others, that's actually happening right now. This is the time. 
And so what, as readers, we should be expecting then, uh, starting in verse 4, we should expect the messenger to show up. After the messenger shows up, we should expect God to show up. That's important because we're going to see who shows up after the messenger. We should expect God to show up, and then we should expect God to purify some people, that is, bring them forgiveness, right, and bring righteousness to them, and we should expect him to bring judgment on other people. I wonder if that's how it's going to go in the story. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. What's happening here? John is being portrayed as the messenger. Notice John appeared in the wilderness, and that's picking up on that theme from uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. There's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. The author of Mark's trying to portray John as this messenger. And so John appeared in the wilderness, and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, is there anything confusing about that? If you just read that in English, it sort of sounds like what he's saying is John was preaching that you have to be baptized when you repent in order to be forgiven of your sins, right? It just sort of has that vibe in English. But here's what the author is saying about John's message. It's pretty simple, actually, right? First, John says, you repent and God will forgive you. And that's the way it's always worked in the story of the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David has sinned with Bathsheba. He's done the biggie, right? Uh, he's actually done two biggies, right? He grabbed a woman that's not his wife and said, I'll have you, thank you very much. And then to cover it up, what did he do? Well, he just went ahead and murdered her husband. So those are two of the biggies. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him a little story. There's a rich man. He's got a lot of sheep and a lot of goats and all that stuff. And a, a friend comes to visit. And rather than take one of his own sheep to serve the guy for the feast, he looks over at his neighbor who only has one and takes that one and serves it up to his neighbor. And David gets furious and says, that guy needs to die. He's in big fat trouble. And Nathan points his finger and says, you are that dude. Now, David realizes what's going on. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David says, I have sinned. Nathan says to him, the Lord has removed your iniquity. It's that simple. David repents. He says, I've sinned. Nathan says, you are forgiven. Now, if you look at Psalm 51, you get the story or a poem about David's repentance. David says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and you're blameless when you judge. What is David doing here? David is owning it. He's not blame shifting. He's not explaining it away. He is owning it before the Lord. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's not just that I did a sin, man. I'm, I'm actually a sinner. And in sin, my mother conceived me. From the womb, I come out a sinner. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and I didn't have any. I'm adding that part. I didn't have any. And in the hidden parts, you will make known wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord says to Israel, they've been idolatrous for centuries. He says, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. That's an amazing thing to think about. Look, I haven't done the biggies like David, but I'm a sinner, and oftentimes I feel like maybe the Lord isn't really all that forgiving, or he's kind of bent out of shape at me. God looked at Israel, who had been worshiping idols for centuries, offering their children as sacrifices to idols, and he said, if you just repent, come, let's reason together. I will wash you white as snow. 
David says the same thing. He cries out and says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, right? So this is David's repentance. There's a poetic version of David repenting. And Psalm 32 is the companion psalm to this. How does David experience God's forgiveness on the other end? That's Psalm 32. We'll look at verses one to five. David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, right? David has repented. He's cried out that God would wash him clean and forgive him of his sins. And now here's the blessing of forgiveness, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That means God doesn't count his sins against him. How blessed is that person? And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen to what David says. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of a summer. When I didn't confess, things were not good. But verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, this is exactly what was going on in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. So the story of the Old Testament goes like this. If you repent, if you confess your sins, God will forgive you. Let me give you one more example. This is Jeremiah chapter 36, verses one to three. Chapter 36 starts out like this. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations. From the day that I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day, perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive him their iniquity, and their sin. Jeremiah is meant to write something down, all the words that God gave him. It's meant to bring conviction to Israel so that they would turn from their evil ways. And the Lord said, then I will forgive them. So how does it go? God says, you repent and I will forgive. You repent and I will forgive. So when John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness, he says the same thing. You repent and God will forgive and baptism will be the sign that you're repenting And baptism will symbolize the newness of life that you're receiving. Now, I think I'm going to do a special bonus episode here on this whole concept of baptism and how it relates to forgiveness. We're going to see over in Acts chapter 238, Peter's preaching and he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. How does that work? I think I'm going to do a whole special uh, bonus episode explaining those things. But for now, it's important to understand what John the Baptist is doing. He's crying out saying, you all repent and you'll be forgiven And baptism will symbolize your repentance. It'll symbolize the newness of life that you're receiving. Now, I want you to think about how you picture this scene of John in the wilderness. How do you imagine this? What is John's tone of voice as he's preaching? What does he say? The author doesn't tell us what he says. He just sort of summarizes it. What does John say? And what's his tone of voice? And what is the look on his face? Like, how do you imagine this scene? It's important to notice that in the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't describe the scene at all, and we are kind of left to fill in the blanks of what it must have looked like. And the problem is that we tend to fill in the blanks with all negatives, right? You sort of imagine that John the Baptist is yelling and screaming, and he's calling people sinful and evil, and right? Where do we get this negative image of this scene? The Gospel of Mark says this is the beginning of the good news, and now we have a negative image of John the Baptist yelling and screaming. Where do we get that? 
We get that from the other Gospels, not from Mark. So in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, coming out for baptism. And he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't suppose you can say for yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Right? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruits cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? So we get this negative, uh, judgmental condemnation image of John the Baptist from the Gospel of Matthew, not from the Gospel of Mark. Mark has nothing negative at all in description. In the Gospel of Mark, the good news begins with this message, you can be forgiven. Isn't that like the best news? <laughs> you can be forgiven. I, I need that. You need that. The American people need that. The good news starts with this, you can be forgiven. Now I want to skip ahead to verses 7 and 8. And here we're going to see the only description of John's words. So Mark chapter 1, verse 7, and he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I am, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we have the messenger preparing the way for the Lord. And in some ways, his words are a little bit tricky, but the meaning is actually super simple. Verse 7, after me, one is coming who's mightier than I am. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. What does that mean? The one coming after me is infinitely great. He's infinitely worthy. Verse 8, I symbolize your repentance with baptism in water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He will give you new life. In the story of the Old Testament, receiving the Holy Spirit is the way that people experience new life. Let me show you a few examples of this from the Bible. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. In the context, uh, Ezekiel is speaking about the last days after Israel has been put into exile because of their sin and their idolatry, that God would gather them back from all the nations and give them a new heart. I'll start in verse 24. I'll take you from the nations and I'll gather you from all the lands and I'll bring you back into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. So in the last day, God will give his people a new heart to know him, to love him, and to walk in his ways. And that will happen by giving them the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 17 to 20 says the same exact thing. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you've been scattered. And I will give you back to the land of Israel. Verse 18, when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within in them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they might walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. So in the last day, God will give his people a new heart by putting his spirit within them when he restores them from exile. Let's look at Isaiah 44 verses 1 to 5. And in the context of Isaiah 44, the prophet is talking about a time of restoration for Israel after their exile. He says, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, 
who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is just a poetic name for Jacob or for Israel. Verse three, why should they not fear? Because I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call in the name of Jacob. And another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Right? So in the last day, God will restore his idolatrous people back to him. He'll give them a new heart. He'll give them new life. And he does it by pouring out his spirit on them. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it's only God who gives the spirit. Nobody else gives the spirit. Only God can give his spirit. So John the Baptist is saying, the one that comes after me is infinitely great and worthy. I symbolize your repentance with water, and he will give you new life by giving you the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That means the one who comes after him must be God, because as in I said in the story of the Old Testament, only God can give the Spirit. And that fits with this portrayal of the messenger. The messenger is going to go first, and he's going to prepare the way. And then after he prepares the way, the Lord God will come and purify some and bring judgment to others. So here's the beginning of the good news. You can be forgiven. All you have to do is repent, and God will give you new life. Now, that is a message of hope for the world, for real, right? You can be forgiven. Just repent, and God will give you new life. And what we're going to do as we go along in the story is pay attention to who responds to that, who goes ahead and receives new life by repenting, and who doesn't, who rejects Jesus the King. Now, let's skip back to Mark chapter 1, verse 6, and let's not forget the crazy scene that's going on here. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Um, leather belts are kind of cool. Not so sure about camel's hair. I dig the honey part. Locusts are right out. Thank you very much. So here's this scene, right? We got this crazy prophet guy out in the wilderness. He's telling people to repent of their sins. He's dunking them in the river and saying that they can be forgiven and have new life. That's the scene. Now, who's going to go for that? I mean, can you imagine that as a ministry strategy? Let's get a dude in camel hair and a belt who just eats bugs out by a river, and he'll tell people to repent of their sins and that God will give them new life, right? That'll be our ministry strategy. Probably not going to work in your youth ministry very much. Well, what happens? Look at verse 5, back up just one verse. It says, all the countryside of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. Now that doesn't mean every single person, right? When it says all the country and all the people of Jerusalem, it doesn't mean every single one of them. It means all kinds of people, all kinds of people from the country of Judea and all kinds of people from Jerusalem are going out to see John the Baptist. They're all going, right? All types of people from all over Israel. And they're not going out to see the clown show. Like that's not how the story portrays it. It says all the country of Judea was going out to him, all the people of Jerusalem, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Holy cow, man. They're not going to see a clown show. They're going to repent. And their lives are being transformed. God is forgiving them and pouring out his spirit on them and giving them brand new life. How do you explain that? Like, how in the world do you explain a guy by a river in camel's hair and eating bugs, proclaiming the good news of forgiveness if you'll just repent? How do you explain all these people going out and confessing their sins and repenting. My only explanation uh, just comes from this text. Apparently, the good news works, right? Apparently, the offer of forgiveness meets the need of sinful, heavy hearts. 
And when that offer meets the need of that heart, there's response there. Apparently, the offer of new life connects with the weary souls of sinners, right? That message of good news, you repent and God will forgive you and he'll give you new life by the Holy Spirit. Apparently, that message actually works, right? So John leads the way to Jesus the King with the message of forgiveness and new life, and it worked, now think about that as a ministry strategy. Man, we got all kinds of tricks, all kinds of gimmicks, all kinds of things we're trying to do to get people to come to our churches, to get people to stay at our churches. We're trying to be relevant. We're worried that if we just lay the word on people, somehow they won't like it and they won't stay. But the way the gospel of Mark begins, right? John leads people to Jesus with this message of forgiveness and new life, and it worked. And it worked. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Number one, we need to ask, is this the way we're leading people to Jesus? Are we approaching our world and sinful people in our world with this kind of message, the good news of the gospel? God will forgive you. If you repent, he'll give you new life. Are we coming at the world that way? It's easy to take a negative approach to the world. It's easy to take the Matthews version of John the Baptist approach to the world, right? Where we're out screaming, you're bad. God doesn't like you. God doesn't like your behavior, right? All you people that are not like us, that don't vote like us, that want bad things and do bad things, God's mad at you. And God doesn't like you. He likes us because we're awesome, but he doesn't like you. You should join our weird church club. You should have no fun like we're having because we have no fun at church. And God will pretty much still be disappointed with you because you're still going to be a sinner, right? Well, that sounds like good news for sure. There's the gospel. How about not? Imagine if we just approached our world. Imagine if you approached your world, the sinners and the people in your world that you look at and you go, man, those people are sinful. God must be bent out of shape with them. They're doing naughty things. What if you approach them with the good news? Hey, you know, you can be forgiven. Do you realize how much burden is in their soul related to their sin? I know they don't act like it and they don't confess it. They try to cover it like we all did and like we all do. But think of the spiritual and emotional energy people go through to feel okay about sinning. They weren't made to sin. And we go through so much to make ourselves feel okay about it. And that's the burden that so many people in your world are experiencing right now. And if you just approach them with the good news, you know, you can let that burden go and God will just forgive you of those sins. You don't have to make it up to him. You don't have to get it straight. The Bible just says, would you repent of those sins? Confess them, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. Just confess, just repent, and God will forgive you. He'll give you new life. Who doesn't want new life? I mean, who doesn't go through most of their days going, man, I wish my life were different? The author of Mark gives us the solution that the people in our world needs, right? You can be forgiven. Just repent and God will give you new life. So number one, it means are we reaching out to our world with the message of the good news? Or are we taking a Matthew's version of John the Baptist negative approach to the world? That's not our job, right? That was John the Baptist's job to those people during that time in the gospel of Matthew. Our job is to do what? Bring the good news of the gospel to the people in our world. Number two, let me ask you this question. Lots and lots of people in the story are going out to repent with John the Baptist. And the text asks us this question, what about you? Are you repenting? You don't need to go out to John the Baptist and you don't need to get dunked in a river, but are you repenting? Are you believing the promise of forgiveness? Right? I know like, and I don't mean 
Have you believed that? And did you repent at one time? It's important to have a moment in your life where you look at God and are honest and say, yep, I repent and I believe the promise of the good news of the gospel that you'll forgive me of my sins if I trust you. But like all of us need that continually, right? If you just take any five minute slice of my day, there's something in there that I need to repent of and be forgiven of some attitude, some thought, some action, some word, right? So the question isn't, have you repented and did you believe? It's, are you repenting and are you believing God's promise of forgiveness? So easy to feel like that God has been out of shape and disappointed because we keep sinning. And if, you know, he doesn't want us to, and I'm trying to grow in the Lord and be a godly man and whatever. And man, by Tuesday, I feel like, well, I've blown it a bunch of times already. God must be bent out of shape. But that same good news applies to us today, right? If you will confess your sins, if you will repent, First John 1 John 1.9 says he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. That promise is true for you today. It'll be true for you tomorrow. You need it today and you're going to need it tomorrow. And so will I. So the text is asking us, what about you? Are you repenting and are you believing the good news and the promise that God will forgive? All right. So that's the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the story of the gospel of Mark. We've met Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Now we're going to learn a lot more about him coming up. We got introduced to John the Baptist, the messenger that goes before the Lord. We've seen his message of new life and forgiveness through repentance, and we've seen some of the early response. Lots of people are going out and repenting of their sins. Now, let me just give you a little teaser here for next episode. What should we expect after the messenger? Or I should say, who should we expect after the messenger? In Isaiah 40, the messenger shows up and prepares the way for the Lord, and after him, God shows up, right? God shows up to purify some of his people, to bring righteousness and forgiveness to them, and to bring judgment to others. So we should expect in the Gospel of Mark, now that the messenger has been here, we should expect God to show up next. We should expect God to give his spirit, and he should purify some people and judge other people. That's what we should expect in the story of the Gospel of Mark. Now in Mark, who comes next? Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is the author of Mark equating Jesus with? Find out in our next episode when Jesus arrives on the scene, is baptized, and is tempted out in the wilderness. All right, dig it. So in each episode, I want to have an interactive portion of the episode where I interact with your questions and comments, or maybe I ask you a question and you interact with it. So in this episode, I want to ask you a question and I want to have you interact with me over it. And here's my question. What kind of notebook do you use when you're studying the Bible? You notice at the beginning of these episodes, I always say, grab your Bible, grab a notebook, and grab your drink of choice. The importance of a notebook is it just helps you interact with the text of Scripture, helps you think about it, write some things down, process some stuff. It helps you go beyond just sort of mindlessly reading or having your eyes cross over the page. Writing things down in a notebook really forces you to engage with the text at a little bit deeper level. I'm curious, what kind of notebook do you use? So if there's a favorite notebook that you have, email me a link to it on Amazon or take a picture of it inside and outside. Let me see what uh, you do for taking notes and how you do that. Take a picture of it or send me a link on Amazon and you can email that to me at jeff at revjeff.online. I'd love to see what you're using and how you're using it. 
And maybe in one of these episodes, I'll describe my notebook and how I use mine as well. Also, if you have questions or comments about this episode, about what we covered in the Bible, or if you have questions about the Seahawks possibly trading Russell Wilson, if you need a recommendation for some killer rock music to listen to, or if you need a recommendation for a drink of choice for St. Patrick's Day, email me your questions, jeff at revjeff.com. If you have some comments about anything you learned during this episode, email those to me as well. I look forward to interacting with you in the next episode. All right, that's all I got for you in this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, checking out the Know Your Bible podcast. Pray your week is awesome. I pray you're digging into scripture and knowing and loving God more. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible and I will check you later. Falafel of a hiya!